If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash code assistant. IBM, let's create. There are moments in life that are so special that you have to capture them and save them forever. They are one of those once-in-a-lifetime events, like your baby's first steps, the first time you bring your family pet home, or your daughter's first dance performance. With iPhone 15 Pro, more storage means you don't have to delete anything that can become a lasting memory one day. And it's important to be able to share these moments with family members who weren't there to see them in person. Store more, share more. Connect with iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T. Get iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T and get an iPad and Apple Watch for 99 cents per month each. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Limited time offer. Requires 0% APR 36-month agreement on each. Well-qualified customers. Other terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash iPhone for details. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? All right, so I was reading this story from a couple years ago, and it was about this three-year-old boy whose dog, Mo, had passed away. So to help the boy cope with Mo's passing, the boy's mom would get him to write these letters to Mo. And then they address them to Mo Westbrook, Doggy Heaven, Cloud One. <laughs> and each time they put the letter in the mailbox, she'd sneak back out and remove the letter. And one day she forgets to do this. And she just assumed the postal worker would get it and, and throw it away. But a few weeks later, they go out to the mailbox and there was a letter with the return address on it from Mo. And the letter read, I'm in Doggy Heaven. I play all day. I'm happy. Thank you for being my friend. I love you, Luke. <laughs> That's pretty sweet. Yeah, and, and here's the thing. So anywhere I've lived, the mail carrier has been one of the nicest people in the neighborhood. I mean, we chat with ours anytime we see them. And there are not only so many more good stories about heartwarming moments like this, but there are just so many fascinating stories in the history of the U.S. Postal Service. So that's what we're diving into today. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hatikader. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, the man who always delivers, Tristan McNeil. <laughs> and on today's show, we're shining the spotlight on one of the great unsung heroes of our society, and that's the U.S. Postal Service. Of course, everybody's aware of the USPS, but many of us tend to take its services for granted and you know, not really think about the ridiculous amount of planning and work that goes into processing and delivering more than half a billion pieces of mail a day. Hmm. In fact, the only time we devote much thought to the Postal Service at all is when we need something from it or when something's gone wrong and we want to blow off steam by griping about it. So today we're trying to break that bad habit by sharing some of the most interesting pieces of postal history. 
as well as some of the craziest stories to ever make it out of the mailbag. Definitely. And to make sure we don't miss any of the good stuff, we'll be talking to the keeper of postal history herself, Nancy Pope. Nancy Pope's the top historian at the National Postal Museum, so we'll talk to her about what it takes to be a postal historian and find out what she considers to be the most interesting pieces of postal office history. All right, so I, I want to start with one of the things that really stood out to me while doing our research, and that's the immense scope of the Postal Service's operations. I mean, we're talking about the largest retail network in the nation. So there were 31,000 active U.S. post offices. And just to put that in perspective, that's that's more than all the domestic McDonald's, Starbucks, and Walmarts combined. <laughs> and to staff all those locations and handle the deliveries between them, the Postal Service employs over half a million people and maintains a fleet of 227,000 vehicles. That's one of the largest civilian fleets in the world. The U.S. Postal Service is a gargantuan nonstop delivery machine. Yeah, and, and the scope of what all that manpower and tech can achieve is equally impressive. So the USPS is actually responsible for the delivery of nearly half the mail volume in the entire world. That's 47%. But I think the most amazing thing about the whole crazy operation is that for almost 50 years now, it's cost taxpayers virtually nothing. There aren't a whole lot of government departments or agencies you could say that about. It, it, it is impressive. But I, I noticed you said cost virtually nothing for mm-hmm. taxpayers. And I, I always wondered whether like things like the postage sales and products and all their special services like express mail, uh, you know, covered those costs. So are you saying it actually does receive some government funding, though? Well, you're definitely right that stamp sales and stuff like that pays for the agency's operating costs, but they do receive less than 1% of their budget from the government. According to PolitiFact, Congress gives the Postal Service $100 million a year to compensate the agency for providing free mailing privileges to blind people and overseas voters. Okay, well, that that's pretty interesting. And it, it's actually a pretty good return on on what I would say overall is a small investment from each taxpayer. Mm-hmm. And, and honestly, that that's always been the case with mail delivery in America, even before the U.S. became a country. Before we became a country. So how is that? <laughs> well, during the uh, Second Continental Congress in 1775, this is a year before the colonies would declare their independence from England, the delegates established this postal system and, and uh, appointed Ben Franklin as the first postmaster general. And the great thing about that is that Franklin's appointment was this act of rebellion in itself. Like, he'd previously served as the postmaster general in the colonies for the British royal mail system, but he'd been dismissed because of his involvement in the revolution. So he was actually appointed as the first postmaster general twice. That's impressive. <laughs> it's a good thing we rehired him for our side because, you know, Franklin really helped establish the whole basis of the postal system as we know it today. He surveyed thousands of miles of post roads and made adjustments so that routes would be more efficient. He also instituted the idea of having postal riders travel day and night. They'd use lanterns to light the way for their horses. And all these changes greatly improved the speed of the mail, by some estimates, cutting delivery times in half. That's crazy. So I I had no idea that the postal riders were round the clock. And I I guess that mentality is the same one that gives it like the post office creed about uh, neither snow nor rain. Yeah, there's the whole thing that people always talk about that, you know, neither snow nor rain or heat nor gloom, yada, yada, yada. But actually, it's pretty interesting. There's no such thing as a postman's creed. I was looking at this. and, (laughs) and, And so people always associate that phrase with the postal service because it's engraved on the outside of a famous post office in New York. But 
there's really no official motto for the USPS. In fact, the phrase isn't even original to our own postal system. What? It's actually a translation of the Greek historian Herodotus and his description of the ancient Persian mail courier. So apparently they did all of this through <laughs> neither heat nor rain or whatever it was. So And all that gloom. But, that's right, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I guess that's a bit of a letdown, but uh, it, it does feel strange that we uh, expect our electric bills to be delivered during blizzards. I'd say they've actually done a pretty decent job of meeting these, you know, admittedly high expectations. Because there's one other thing that amazed me while doing the research, and that's just how versatile an organization the USPS is. So it's grown right along with the country for hundreds of years, and it's had to evolve to fit the expanding needs of the public. Yeah. So, well, one of the first major transitions took place back in 1893 when the USPS first started delivering mail by train. And so prior to that, most deliveries had been made on horseback or by horse-drawn wagon. And when the mail volume increased, that's when things changed. But the burgeoning railroad with its hubs in major cities, that all allowed the mail to be delivered up and down the East Coast. And the tech changes only increased from there. So like cars and trucks arrived on the mail scene in 1899 and Airplanes soon followed suit in uh, 1911, I believe. Yeah, and, you, you know, you can still see that kind of versatility today. According to the Postal Service, they use every transportation method available to them while making their rounds. I was looking at a list of the different ways they deliver mail. that include planes, trains, trucks, cars, boats, ferries, helicopters, subways, float planes, hovercraft, mules, bicycles, and, of course, feet. <laughs> well, I, I feel like I should be stunned by hovercrafts, but it's really mules that's confusing to me. Yeah, it's still on the list. There's actually one mail-by-mule route left in the U.S., and it's huh. this eight-mile trail that leads down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, where the Havasupai tribe, uh, they've lived there for over 800 years. And so six days a week, the mule train carries about 4,000 pounds of mail, food, supplies, and even furniture down these steep walls of the canyon. I was trying to look to see how long this took. It takes about three hours for the team to get down there, but it's a five-hour trip coming back (laughs) up. And this happens six days a week. That's so crazy. And it's amazing that the mail really does go everywhere. But, but you know, there's uh, one delivery method that I'm kind of bummed is missing from the current list. Oh, yeah. What's that? Pneumatic tubes. So, All right. Uh, so before mail trucks took to the streets, the six major cities, I've got these written down. So it's Philadelphia, St. Louis, Boston, Brooklyn, New York, and Chicago. They all made use of underground networks of pressurized air tubes to deliver their mail. And at the system's peak in 1915, the cities had a combined total of over 56 miles of pneumatic tubes, all zigzagging beneath their surface. Wow. And and while these tube systems started popping up in the U.S. during the 1890s, they'd actually been used in Europe for almost 40 years by that point. Apparently, they were first put to use in stock exchanges so that traders could communicate messages to buy or sell stocks at, you know, a faster rate than telegraph. And that, yeah, it makes sense as a way to get messages across. And the pneumatic tubes are, are what the banks use, and those are really fast. But, you know, we're talking about 120-plus years ago. So were they actually fast in the 1890s? Yeah, the, the weird thing is they were pretty fast. Like, the mail tubes in the U.S. could move a canister holding up to 600 letters at an average speed of 35 miles per hour. Oh, wow. Yeah, so as one example, uh, and there are stories of postal workers who worked the tubes that they were known as rocketeers. But these rocketeers in downtown New York City actually ordered sandwiches from this deli up in the Bronx. 
And, and apparently they'd receive their orders via pneumatic tube within 20 minutes. Oh, I want to order a sandwich by pneumatic I tube. That, that is pretty awesome. I, I, although I'm guessing ordering lunch wasn't officially sanctioned for the use of the tubes. But <laughs> so, so did you come across any other weird stuff that was sent by these tubes? Definitely. So uh, according to an article written by Robert Cohen for the USPS website, there was this bizarre opening ceremony where the first tubes were installed at the general post office in New York City. And the higher-ups there basically wanted to show the employees what their new toy could do. So the very first mail canister to travel the tubes, uh, it, it contained a Bible, a flag, and a copy of the Constitution, <laughs> which is super patriotic. And the second contained this imitation peach in honor of uh, Senator Chauncey Depew. Apparently, he was fondly known as the peach. Even more patriotic. <laughs> and the third carrier is the weirdest. It had a black cat in it. A black cat. <laughs> oh, wow. That's pretty weird. And, and as much as I dislike cats, I really hate the idea of somebody stuffing a cat into a tube. Was the cat okay? Yeah, well, well the cat was fine. It was a little dazed, according to witnesses, but uh, <laughs> otherwise all right. And sa- sadly, though, this was just the first of many animals to be shot around New York City through a pressurized tube. So <laughs> Kenneth Stewart, he's the author of uh, Pneumatic Mail Tubes and Operation of Automatic Railroads. He says that plenty of other animals made the journey, too, including dogs and mice and roosters Guinea pigs, monkeys, even some goldfish. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and in one of those cases, it actually involved sending a sick cat to the animal hospital. So it was a good use, but the rest were mostly just examples of postal workers showing off. <laughs> I'd say this is not this postal service's proudest moment, but uh, <laughs> but I actually don't get it. So animal cruelty aside, I mean, it sounds like the tubes worked pretty well in these sprawling cities. So So why don't we see New Yorkers and others still using them? Yeah, so there are actually a few reasons. Well, one was that the mail volumes kept increasing, and, and it was simply too much for the tubes to handle, especially considering the system's pipes were only between two and eight inches wide. Oh, my God, that poor cat. I can't stop thinking about that. <laughs> yeah, but the main reason is that most of the tube systems were built and owned by private companies, and, and they merely rented to the post office. So uh, these uh, rental costs just got too high in the long term. And uh, according to Kate Astor, who's the author of The Works Anatomy of a City, Uh, Let me just find this quote. She wrote, by 1918, the federal government considered the annual rental payments $17,000 per mile per annum made by the post office to be exorbitant. And they endorsed a new alternative with greater capacity, the automobile as the delivery method of choice. Yeah, I mean, as sad as it is to see this go away, I guess it, it it makes sense. And I can't deny that pneumatic tubes and mule trains, they do add this pop of color to the Postal Service's history, though. Yeah, totally. And in fact, well, why don't we get a historian on the line and see what other weird stories are lurking in the USPS archives? Sounds like a plan. So our guest today has been with the Smithsonian Institution for over three decades now, which, Mango, I'm pretty sure that makes her super smart, if mm-hmm. I'm not mistaken. <laughs> so, But more importantly for today's episode, she's been curating exhibits at the National Postal Museum since it opened in 1993. She's now the head curator of the history department there. Nancy Pope, welcome to Part-Time Genius. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, Nancy, we've had so much fun digging into the history of the Postal Service, and we've talked about all the things like, you know, delivery by mule and pneumatic tubes and all kinds of stuff. But but do you have a favorite delivery method that's actually no longer being used? I have a favorite method that was used once. What's that? <laughs> it's missile mail. On June 8, 1959, the U.S. Navy fired a Regulus-1 missile off the USS Barbero, 
which was floating out in the Atlantic, and they directed it to land at the Naval Auxiliary Air Station at Bayport, Florida. And instead of having a nuclear weapon on board, they had two blue and red metal containers that held 3,000 letters. Wow. So, so why were they doing this? Postmaster General Arthur Summerfield was a man who really wanted to modernize his post office, and he was doing anything and everything he could do to kind of try that. <laughs> and he was trying a lot of silly things. And he thought about missile mail, and he talked to the War Department, and they had their own little idea that they wanted to make sure the Russians knew that we were so good with our missiles that we could direct them to land anywhere we wanted, and they were so useful that we could use them to, I don't know, carry mail. The, the letter that Summerfield sent and was one of the 3,000 letters. They were actually all the same letters inside the missile. He says that this is just the beginning, but um, he's smarter than that. And I think it was a PR stunt from beginning to end <laughs> for both the war and the post office department. Actually, one of the other exhibits I saw was the uh, railway mail crane, which doesn't seem that exciting at first, but can you explain how that worked in terms of the, the trains passing through towns pretty quickly? In the days of railway mail, most of the times the trains would actually stop and exchange the mail at a train station, but they couldn't stop at every single one. You know, most trains were not milk runs. And so to exchange the mail at some of these towns, they had to figure out a way to get the mailbag off and a mailbag onto the train while the train was moving. And they came up with these cranes, and the postmaster would go up and hook a mailbag, a leather mailbag, to this crane so it was fastened at top and bottom, stretched out so it was very tight. And then the train would come along, and the clerk on the train would be looking out his door, and he had a long iron crane that was attached to the door and he'd swing that out and you could never swing it out too early because then you knocked the telephone poles down. (laughs) So you had to watch out and be very, very careful until you saw the crane Then you swung your iron crane out and the crane would actually grab the mail bag and you would pull the crane back in and while you're doing this, you would kick the mail bag full of mail for that station off the train. So you're doing all of this at once, and you had to kick really hard because if you didn't, it got sucked under the train, and mailbag would explode, letters everywhere, <laughs> and they called that a snowfall. <laughs> wow. That's pretty uh, – it actually sounds like it would be pretty dangerous at the same time, but that, that's, that's very interesting. So I know the main vehicle used by the Postal Service, this uh, Grunman LLV or the Long Life Vehicle, I read somewhere recently that it gets an average fuel economy of about – 10 miles a gallon, if, and if that's the case, what, what are your thoughts on you know, why that vehicle was chosen and, and why we haven't seen a move away from that vehicle given how much fuel must be used in you know, a given week? The LLV was selected after a test run. What happened was the post office department um, was tired of just buying their vehicles off the rack. They said, we have very special needs. We're going to list our needs. And then we're going to say build a vehicle to those needs. They were put over, you know, horrible ditches. They were put over cobblestones. They had to stop and start, stop and start, stop. 
all the things that a, a, a mail vehicle has to do that our regular cars don't. And the LLV, the Grumman LLV, won the test. And because they won that test, that's why they were selected. And they were also selected because they could last 25 years. Um, a bigger problem right now is 25 years has expired for most of that fleet. And the post office department very much wants to get new cars. And they have started bringing in new vehicles um, bit by bit. But it's going to be, you know, millions of dollars to replace the total LLV fleet that's left. So uh, let's talk stamps for a second. Are there any historical figures you feel are overdue for recognition on a stamp? I would think Arthur Summerfield should be on a stamp if he hasn't been yet. And that was the Postmaster General who did the missile mail. Just because he came up with the whole concept of modernizing the post office department in the 50s because it had been stuck in the 30s with no money because of the Depression, in the 40s with no money because of World War II. So by the 50s, they were using 30-year-old trucks that were barely being held together by, you know, spit and glue. Uh, their, mechan- their systems of moving the mail inside a post office were just antiquated. Everything was old and stupid and rotten, and nothing was working well. And he came in and basically convinced Congress to give him a lot of money to modernize things. And he kick-started a whole lot of stuff in the post office department, got automation going, computerized sorting systems, the zip code system, all of that would have never existed if it wasn't for Summerfield. So, yeah, get him on a stamp. Yeah, we'll, we'll start the petition. Yeah, yeah. Well, for all of our listeners that are visiting the Smithsonian uh, Museums anytime in the near future, we hope you'll check out the National Postal Museum. It is a fascinating place to visit. But, Nancy, thanks so much for joining us on Part-Time Genius. It was my pleasure. of popping the question? Diamonds Direct has an offer you can't miss. This month only, buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. No one provides education, selection, and value like Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at Diamonds Direct won't last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create.
You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about the fascinating evolution of the U.S. Postal Service. So, Will, we've mentioned a few times now that an increase in mail volume was the main reason for a bunch of the mail system's major changes. Like, it's the reason we switched from horses to carriages and then from tubes to trucks. And it's also why the number of post offices ballooned from, you know, just 75 way back in 1790 to over 28,000 in 1860. And in fact, this ever-increasing mail volume became the accepted status quo for over 200 years. No matter what changes came in form of uh, new transportation styles or competing communication systems like telegraphs or telephones or radios or TVs, like the one truth for the Postal Service was that mail volume just continued to go up and up. But all of that changed in 2007 when for the first time in history, mail started to decline. Yeah, and, and and that was the year that the effects of the Internet really started to catch up to them. And and ever since then, the net mail volume flowing through the system has decreased every single year. And it's a big problem for the agency, especially being a self-funded agency, because any decrease in mail is a decrease in revenue. Exactly. And at the same time, the public still expects to receive mail every day of the week at any address in the country. This has led to the Postal Service having to increase its number of delivery points, which ups its operating costs, even as profits steadily shrink. It's, it, you know, it's not all gloom and doom, though. I was, I was reading this article on Upworthy that proposed an interesting solution. You know, they, they were looking at their, their financial woes and trying to come up with things to do. And there's the idea for post offices to start offering financial services, things like check cashing and payday loans. Hmm. So roughly 35 million American households rely on alternative financial services like that instead of traditional banking. And since they have currently have to go through private institutions, you know, for these different kinds of services, it can wind up costing way more money than it should. In fact, according to a report released by the USPS, Americans spend a total of about $89 billion on interest and fees from these alternative financial services. This was from back in 2012. Which is crazy, right? Yeah, it really is. But, but see, if post offices were allowed to compete in that market... They could undercut the competition, save millions for Americans, and secure this nice new revenue stream in the process. At least that's the hope. And and it seems like a win-win and, and not that far-fetched a concept. I, I mean, post offices already offer some banking services like selling money orders and cashing treasury checks. Yeah, you know, really the main thing preventing this from happening would be the banks themselves. They have hmm. an awful lot of clout in government. And, of course, they don't like the idea of a public institution muscling into their territory. But who knows? I mean, if the situation continues to worsen for the USPS, those voices of opposition might cease to carry as much sway. Yeah. And, and the good news is that history is on the Postal Service's side. So it's faced some pretty dire challenges in the past, and it's always muddled through. I, I mean, if you need any evidence of the resilience of the USPS, you just have to look at zip codes. Well, that's a good point. And, and there's definitely an aspect of mail we take for granted. So, so actually, I think we should spend a little time talking about zip codes. Sure. So uh, we, we can give a little background on it. For starters, zip codes are a much more recent innovation than you'd guess. Although they were first developed as this time-saving tool to help understaffed post offices, and this was during uh, World War II, they weren't actually put into use until 20 years later in 1963. And this was a time before the Postal Service was self-funding. It still received the bulk of its funds from Congress, but in the mid-60s, Congress wasn't supplying enough cash to keep up with the post-war mail boom. Yeah, and post offices wanted new sorting machines so they could finally automate the process instead of continuing to wage this really unwinnable war that was hand-sorting at the time. But 
Congress thought they were making a big deal out of nothing. I mean, after all, they'd handled mail the old-fashioned way for over a century at this point. So as they saw it, you know, why fix what isn't broken? Except it was broken. I mean, yeah. the, the proof finally came in October of 1966. And that's the month when a combination of election mailings and holiday season advertisements, they totally clogged the system. It was like a mail fatberg. And, <laughs> and the whole thing came to a stop. Like the Chicago Post Office, which was the largest in the country at the time, halted mail delivery for a full three weeks while they tried to make sense of this volume and, wow. and all these letters and parcels that needed to be sorted. I mean, the whole thing led Congress back to the move to automation. And at the center of it all was this old zip code idea, which was finally taken off the shelf and put into action. And with the new machinery and the advent of zip codes, postal workers were able to sort up to 30,000 letters an hour, which was nearly 10 times as many as a single worker could sort by hand in the same amount of time. Which I find almost as baffling that a single worker was previously able to sort 3,000 of these. I, mean, <laughs> I that's, know. that's unbelievable. But obviously this was a huge, huge improvement. But I do think we should take a second to explain the role zip codes played in that process. Because, you know, as, as often as we're exposed to zip codes, I, I feel like most of us don't really know that much about them or that they're actually an acronym. ZIP stands for Zoning Improvement Plan. Yeah, and, and the name really does say it all. So the numbers were a part of the plan to improve the way that mail was sorted by address. And a zip code specified which region or zone of the country to which a piece of mail should be sent. And instead of hand sorting letters by city address, which uh, obviously took a good deal of time in some cases and required, you know, knowledge of geography, machines were able to electronically scan the short string of numbers and sort the mail using that coded information. Yeah. And, and that's another thing that I think most of us don't really understand is what exactly those five numbers mean. So I'll just explain that. So the first digit represents the region where the address is located. So for the purposes of zip codes, the country split into 10 zones. You start on the East Coast and then you increase that number as you move across to the West Coast. So, you know, Maine and New York have uh, zip codes that start with zero and one. Maryland's a two. And then you go all the way across the country, you get to California and Washington, and they begin with the number nine. That's pretty awesome. And and I'm guessing the other four digits specify the location of an address even further? Yep, they get even more specific. So the, the second two digits correspond to a smaller area of the country and the, and the central postal facility that services that region. And then the final two digits signify the actual local post office that delivers to that given address. But to me, the best part of it was that the USPS had this advertising campaign they launched in the 60s to raise awareness of the new system. Oh, that's right. So there was this little jingle used to promote it or something like that. Yeah, and, and that's underselling it a bit. So <laughs> it was actually this 15-minute musical PSA performed by none other than the Swingin' Six. Oh, my gosh, the Swingin' Six. I love that it was 15 minutes. <laughs> my God. I know, and, and, and there's no way to do this thing justice by talking about it. You really need to YouTube it. But the short of it is that the Postal Service financed this incredibly campy video as a means of, like, selling the public on the importance of zip codes and how it was going to make everything speedier and more efficient. And they also created this new cartoon mascot named Mr. Zip, and that really helped drive home the point as well. I remember Mr. Zip, that creepy little mailman stick figure dude. <laughs> yeah. And they kind of went all out with this campaign. I mean, they really had no faith in the American public to write these five extra digits, did they? Apparently not. But Mr. Zip and the Swinging Six, like, they really caught on. And, and uh, Mr. Zip became something of a pop culture icon in his own right. He appeared on magazines and mail trucks and television and radio ads. 
and even on things like lunch boxes. <laughs> but, but of course, the surest sign of Mr. Zip's success was that by 1970, which was really just seven years after the start of the campaign, zip code use had uh, risen to, let me find these numbers, 86% nationwide. And by 79, it had climbed to 97%. Wow. I, know, I mean, those are pretty solid results. And it does make you feel for Mr. Zip a little <laughs> bit. I mean, he seems to have played a pretty big role in all of this, kind of the, uh, I don't know, like the smoky bear of the Postal Service. But you don't find him anywhere these days. I know. He's hanging out with Clippy from Microsoft. Right. Yeah. But uh, I, I, I feel like you're preaching the choir here. You, you know, what's weird, though, is that the USPS actually did try out one other mascot before Mr. Zip. And it's kind of a weird story, but... Before we get into it, let's break for a quiz. Okay, Mango, so when we put out a call for listeners to let us know if they wanted to come on and play a quiz, one of them wrote in and is actually a mail carrier, which is perfect for today's episode. I know, it's so awesome. All right, so Sarah Hofferbird, welcome to Part-Time Genius. Hi, thank you so much. Sarah, where are you delivering mail today? I'm in Rochester, New York today. Okay. All right. I, I assume that's where you deliver mail every day. <laughs> Around the city, different places, yeah. Okay. And how long have you been? a? Uh, and, and, and is mail carrier the correct term? What, what is the official title? Uh, my, my, my job title is that I'm a letter carrier, but mail carrier is just, just fine. Okay. And how long have you been doing this? About four years. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for writing in. We're, we're glad you're a, a regular listener of Part-Time Genius. And so we are going to put you to the test. Mango, what is our quiz called today? It's called Going Postal, and it's a true-false quiz. If you know everything about the post office's history, it should be pretty easy. All right. Do you know every single thing about the, the history <laughs> of the post office? There's nothing I don't know. All right. Great. Okay. I like that confidence. Well, here we go. We're going to read your statement, and all you need to do is tell us whether it's true or false. You ready to go? Yes. Okay. Question number one. The first post office in colonial America was in a bar. That is true. Exactly. You're right. So it was set up in 1639 and operated out of uh, the Boston home and tavern of Richard Fairbanks, where he liked to serve glasses of strong water. Oh, excellent. All <laughs> right. She is one for one. Okay, Sarah. Question number two. In Luxembourg, the post office trained St. Bernard's to carry letters to homes, but the system only lasted a month thanks to the city's squirrel population. That sounds like something I would want to be true, but I feel like that's false. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I mean, it's not a totally crazy idea because Belgium did try delivering mail by cats for a little bit, but that was a total disaster. Did they really? Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. Okay. So far, Sarah, you're delivering. This is great. Question number three. In Victorian London, mail was delivered 12 times a day. That is also true. She's amazing at this, yeah. Mail was treated more like instant messenger back then when people actually, like, sent immediate responses back, and they'd get upset if you didn't respond. Okay, all right. Two left. She's three for three so far. Question number four. When Harry Winston donated the Hope Diamond to the Smithsonian in 1958, it was actually sent via U.S. mail. True or false? I want to say that's true. It is true. So they sent it uh, by first-class mail for just $2.44, and the Smithsonian still has the packaging. Wow. And how much was that worth? $350 million today. I need a little bit of insurance on that. <laughs> yeah. That is incredible. All right. We are four for four. Coming up with the last question, let's see if Sarah can score perfect. Let's see. All right. Question number five. Ben Franklin was so obsessed with yams as a tasty snack that in the winter, 
He insisted that every mail carrier receive a warm grilled yam before servicing their route. True or false? That would be delicious in the winter, but I want to say that's false. That's amazing. You went an incredible five for five. Yeah, I wanted that one to be true so much. <laughs> but Mango Me just too. made that Me one too. up. But, uh, all right, so Sarah went an incredible five for five. What has she won today? So uh, Sarah actually gets an official part-time genius certificate of genius, which we're, we're just making, and she's going to be the first recipient. All right, we will send that oh, to you. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, wonderful. we will send that to you in the mail. Safe travels on your route today, and thanks again for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thinking of popping the question? Diamonds Direct has an offer you can't miss. This month only, buy a natural diamond engagement ring of 1 carat plus and receive a free natural 1 carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. No one provides education, selection, and value like Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at Diamonds Direct won't last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM. Let's create. So you were talking about this other postal mascot before the break. So, so what's weird about it? Well, for, for starters, the mascot was a dog, <laughs> which is a surprising choice for postal workers, given the history between the two. All right. Well, I know you're usually the tangent person, but I feel like I want to go <laughs> on one here as well, because I was actually kind of curious about the deal with dogs and postal workers. So I was looking into it a little bit. And, and actually, this psychology of having their turf invaded and understanding why they always go after the postal workers. So the situation's made way worse by the fact that the mail carriers keep coming day in and day out. And, and that's something I had not really thought about hmm. before. So it reinforces the idea that the dog needs to defend its territory. And, you know, because the carriers do eventually walk away from the home, the dog feels rewarded and is likely to repeat that same behavior huh. next time. It's basically the definition of a vicious cycle and and major emphasis on the vicious part here, because actually I was looking at the numbers. According to the USPS, more than 6,000 of its mail carriers are attacked by dogs each year. Oh, man, that's terrible. Yeah. And I'm actually glad I get to talk about this mascot now. It's it's a nice throwback to these days when dogs and postal workers were actually friends. But uh, at least that was the case with this particular dog named Oni. That was the actual dog? Is that, that this is a real dog, Oni? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Oni was a stray mutt who started joining a mail clerk on his morning walk. Uh, this was in Albany, New York, way back in 1888. And this morning routine gradually led to Oni hanging out at the office during the day. And he became friends with uh, other postal clerks. And he also developed this strange affinity for the texture of uh, mail bags, <laughs> both the texture and the smell. And once his clerk pal moved away, the other male clerks took him in. 
And from there, Oni started following his beloved mailbags onto mail wagons and trains, and he rode with the bags in the post office train cars, traveling all over the country and later all over the world. And all these railroad workers were cool with some random dog just traveling around with them? <laughs> yeah, apparently they loved Oni. So uh, train wrecks were really common at the time, but no train ever crashed with Oni on board. And he kind of became this uh, good luck charm for the railway mail clerks and this unofficial mascot whose many travels were marked by uh, people placing medals and tags on his collar. Oh, that's really sweet. But so, so did he get to keep one of the mailbags when he retired? No. So th- this story actually has kind of a sad ending. So Oni never made it to retirement. In June, Oni boarded a mail train for Toledo, Ohio. And while Oni was making his rounds and, you know, greeting all these people in Toledo, one postal clerk showed him to a newspaper reporter. And the full details have never been investigated, but supposedly Oni became ill-tempered and, and he was shot on June 11th, 1897. Oh, God, Mango, that really took a turn there. I know. But like I said, we don't really know the full details, but we do know that the, the mail clerks were totally devastated. They took up this collection and used the money to have Oni preserved. And today, visitors to the National Postal Museum in Washington, D.C. can actually see Oni on display, still wearing his harness and some of his favorite tags. Oh, that's pretty neat. Well, I guess that's about as happy of an ending as you can get with a story like that. But honestly, I'm glad to hear they put his remains in the museum instead of just stuffing him in one of those pneumatic tubes <laughs> we were talking about earlier. Yeah, I mean, Oni never traveled by tube. But uh, there are plenty of animals who make trips by mail even today. You know, I, I saw that, like, apparently live scorpions are totally fine to mail. And, <laughs> you know, as long as they're to be used for medical or anti-venom research, I don't know how you prove that, but that's those are the reasons you can mail them. And they're clearly marked as live scorpions. I also saw that baby alligators are mailable, too, as long as they're under 20 inches. I've, uh, this all feels totally crazy to me. Uh, but, but by the way, my, my favorite animal by mail story is the one about this guy in Ohio who mailed his pet chameleon to Florida so they could have a warmer place to live. He was worried the little guy wouldn't make it through the cold winter in Ohio, so he slipped the lizard into this pre-stamped envelope and mailed it off to the Sunshine State. So did this? Uh, did the chameleon make it? Yeah, the sender had requested that he be informed when his pet arrived, and sure enough, Orlando's postmaster obliged. He responded, uh, let me find this. Dear David, I received your chameleon yesterday, and he was immediately released on the post office grounds. Best wishes for a Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> now that's an animal in the mail story. All right, so, you know, still as weird as mailing around chameleons and alligators and scorpions is, it, it's it's nothing compared to mailing actual people, which I know we both saw in our research has actually happened. I know. I, I was hoping this would come up. So there's such a long, successful history of people sending themselves and each other through the mail. And as far as we know, the first person to travel by mail was Baby James Beagle, he was this eight-month-old boy whose parents mailed him to his grandmother a few miles away. God, eight months old. <laughs> I know, a baby gram. And this was just a few weeks after the Postal Service began transporting larger parcels rather than just letters or magazines. So it really didn't take long for someone to try mailing a human. Apparently, the main appeal was that postage was way cheaper than a train ticket. Baby James's travel apparently only cost his parents 15 cents in stamps. Though, to be fair, they did spring for $50 in insurance. Oh, nice. <laughs> the parents of the year right there. But you, you're right, though. Mailing yourself is definitely an inexpensive way to travel. I, I was reading about this professional javelin thrower from Australia. His name was Reg Spears. And so in 1964, he wound up stranded in England after failing to make the cut for the English Olympic team. He was all set to return home, and then his wallet was stolen. And so he was left flat, broken, without any way back to Australia. 
his solution? Well, seal himself in a small crate and actually <laughs> mail himself cash on delivery. So uh, how long was he in there? I think it was like a three-day trip and all, and this this includes this particularly toasty layover in Mumbai where, <laughs> you know, his limited provisions and makeshift bathroom slash water bottle, I mean, these things were stretched to their limits on this three-day trip. And in the end, though, the plan worked, and he made it safely back to Australia. Of course, reporters quickly caught wind of this embarrassing ordeal, but Spears even managed to turn that to his advantage. The airline itself took pity on him, forgave his debt. He even went on to co-author a book about the experience. It was titled, of course, Out of the Box. <laughs> That's pretty great. But my favorite story of all time of someone uh, shipping himself in a box has to be Henry Box Brown, the slave who mailed himself to freedom. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, you should tell the story. Definitely. So in 1849, Brown escaped his master's property in Virginia. And with the help of some abolitionists, he mailed himself across state lines to the free state of Pennsylvania. It cost him $86, which is a little more than $2,500 today. And the trip lasted a miserable 27 hours, but mm. it actually went off without a hitch. The next day, Brown was successfully delivered to freedom, and he went on to become a well-known entertainer and abolitionist speaker in his later life, and that was all thanks to the U.S. mail system. Man, well, I mean, if that's not a ringing endorsement for the USPS, I I'm honestly not sure what is. <laughs> yeah, but would you say we now honor one of our own sacred institutions with a good old-fashioned fact-off? I'll start with a story about how a stamp was used to do some serious trash-talking and almost started a war. In the 1930s, Nicaragua's Postal Service put out a stamp that featured a map of Nicaragua. The stamp also showed Honduras north of Nicaragua's border, but instead of just letting it be, the stamp labeled the territory, quote, territory in dispute. And this was despite the fact that the territory issues had been settled 30 years earlier. When the stamps first started arriving with mail in Honduras, People started rioting, and, and a mob showed up at the Nicaraguan embassy. And after both countries sent troops to the border, the U.S. and Mexico actually had to intervene just to prevent the war. Oh, wow. All right, well, this is a pretty different one. So ever wonder where the mail goes when it's determined that it cannot be delivered and the Postal Service doesn't know where to return it to? It's actually not far at all from where we're sitting right now. This is to the Mail Recovery Center here in Atlanta. Hmm. So sadly, it took on this name in 1994 when its name was changed from what had been the Dead Letter Office, <laughs> which I just love so much more. But the MRC then auctions off these items of value, not not individually. They're actually sold as these big groups of things. So there have even been entire tractor trailers of books sold, as an example. That's kind of awesome. So I, I was looking at some stats on junk mail. The amount of junk mail received by all American households in the U.S. each year is the equivalent of about 100 million trees. And junk mail manufacturing creates the equivalent of 3.7 million cars in greenhouse gas emissions. Oh, wow. All right. So hikers in Nevada and Utah and other areas of these vast landscapes have been puzzled by these huge concrete arrows on the ground. But if you were to fly over these arrows, you'd actually see that they're part of this cross-country path of arrows. So in the 1920s, Congress approved the creation of a nearly 3,000-mile line of these 70-foot-long yellow concrete arrows stretching from New York to San Francisco. They're about 10 miles apart, and the purpose was to give pilots of the time a way to navigate safely across the various 13 stops from coast to coast. Which is actually awesome. So uh, until the 1960s, most college students actually mailed their dirty clothes home to mom to wash, 
And this was until washing machines became more common. It was also expected that mom would send your clean underwear back with a fresh batch of cookies. I'm kind of hoping my mom's not listening to this because <laughs> I still send my clothes home to mom. I don't want her to know that most people don't do this anymore. But I got to admit it, that's a great fact. So I'm going to have to give you this fact off. Congratulations. Now, if we missed any of your favorite postal service facts, you can email us, as always, parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com or call our 24-7 fact hotline, 1-844-PT-GENIUS. It is still 24-7, right, Mango? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's great. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. (laughs) Jerry Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eve Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Do we, do we forget Jason? Jason who? the question diamonds direct as an offer you can't miss this month only buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at two thousand dollars imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once no one provides education selection and value like diamonds direct your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at diamonds direct won't last long details at diamondsdirect.com Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Your new home journey starts at Fisher Homes, where everything is red, white, and new. Explore exclusive summer savings and start your journey by selecting your ideal home site and your dream community. Choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans and bring your style to life at the Lifestyle Design Center. Are you looking for a quick move-in ready home instead? Fisher Homes has options for those too. Fill out a form to connect with a new home advisor at fisherhomes.com to get started today before the sun sets on summer savings.